0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. Storytellers are used to working under constraints, whether that means tight deadlines or within the narrative parameters set by your characters. However, the language we speak and write in is a constraint that frequently flies below the radar. Have you ever stopped to think about how your narrative would change if you spoke Japanese, Spanish, or even Navi? Dr. Christine Schreier is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia, Canada, where she teaches linguistic anthropology. But not only does Christine study languages, she helps Hollywood to create them. Maybe you've heard of Kryptonian or Eltarian. Today she joins us to discuss the rich storytelling that's unlocked through constructed languages or conlanging. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Such a pleasure to have you on, Christine. I I first heard about you through an article in the Alumni Gazette through Western University. um, And to see it coming full circle here to have this this wonderful conversation two years later is is just a real treat for me. So I'd like to ask you about some serious, serious items, like a PhD, for instance. Um, So what is it about linguistic anthropology that piques your curiosity and passion?
1: I really love linguistic anthropology because I I love anthropology as a whole because we get to learn about people from all across space and what people are doing in the world and how somebody in Papua New Guinea, for example, is living their life versus how we're living our lives in Canada. And for me the linguistic piece of it was always the most interesting because you can learn so much through how people speak and the words that they use or um, the kinship system and the terminology in that or how they talk about the land and so it just is a different way a window into the society and the social structures and it's the most interesting piece in my opinion
0: well wow. well language means a lot to people and certainly you know we have like a heart language maybe we were brought up with and so on but but the work that you do is in like this world of constructed languages. So I just want to touch on that. Um, Now, how did you first become involved in constructing languages? Uh, And as you say, uh, conlanging, I think, is another term for that. That's right. Yeah, conlanging was put into
1: the Oxford Dictionary in 2010, so it's fun that other people are now embracing it. Um, So, I first started getting interested in conlanging uh, teaching my classes, actually, at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Um, I teach a course on the introduction to linguistic anthropology, and in that course, my students, as they learn about the pieces of linguistics, are tasked with coming up with their own language. So, when we learn about sounds of languages, the students then choose the sounds that they are going to put into their language. And at first, students are extremely daunted by this. um, And then as they get along in the course, they realize how fun it actually is. And I get numerous, numerous comments talking about why that was their favorite piece of the course, because they got to apply what they were learning every um, couple weeks. And uh, they get to make gestures and um, borrow words from other groups. And it's a really fun project. So that's when I first started getting involved in constructed languages, and then early on when I was teaching the course, there was a news article that came out about Navi, which is the language that is spoken in Avatar, and I shared that with the students and said, look, somebody has made a language for these movies and they've been doing that for years, Klingon has been in Star Trek, so if if they can do it for Hollywood, you guys can do it for this class, Um, and then after that I went to Papua New Guinea where I do some of my research and I learned a new language there called pidgin so conlangs are also new languages and so I was interested in the different types of new languages in the world and then I taught a course um, more focused on conlangs and new languages that so was called pigeons creoles and created languages in the fall of 2010 and then things just kind of spiraled from there
0: Wow in Papua New Guinea uh, correct me if I'm wrong but they have north of 30 different languages spoken in that small part of the world Actually,
1: Papua New Guinea is the country with the most languages in the world, and there are approximately eight hundred and
0: sixty languages spoken in Papua New Guinea. Whoa, I totally stand corrected. Okay, <laughs> that, <that's, laughs> because I knew it was high. Maybe, maybe in certain areas it's like thirty here, but, yeah. but all all said, when all said and done, oh my gosh, over eight hundred languages in one part of the world there yeah most diverse linguistically in the world that's awesome mm-hmm. um, as you were saying there's various languages that are created like Klingon from Star Trek as you mentioned and I'm just you know thinking back to like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where you have Elvish and and other variety of languages and people really just love to do this maybe as a hobby or or even um, you know as a, a career move and certainly you've been able to employ your linguistic skills that way too so uh, your students um, I hope they're part of that Facebook group because I know I'm in it it's a- <laughs> Language. I don't make them up but but I wanted to learn more and certainly uh, I have learned a lot because of the work that you've done. So um, how do people even begin a process like a constructed language? You know, how, how do you make a fictional language? Well,
1: I try to, in my courses, students start with sounds, and I I want them to realize that they actually can't just start with sounds, because sounds are the building blocks of language, and then you put sounds into words, but you really need to know who is going to be speaking this language, and I want them to realize that. So I never tell them that, but they figure it out pretty quickly when they get to putting the sounds together to make words. And they're like, well, what words do we need? What, what are these people doing? Like, where do they live? And so you really need to think about the people and the world that you're building, or maybe it's just a secret language for a society that you're already a part of, right? Maybe it's your friends want to have a secret language, or maybe it's you're writing a novel and you want to have an alien race that speaks differently. And so maybe they have different vocal cords or their mouths are shaped differently and they can't make all of the sounds. So right away, that's going to impact um the sounds you choose and the types of words you're going to develop. So really thinking about who will speak this language and why am I making it is the first step for any conlanger.
0: Wow. OK. So it, it does start then with the people group that will be speaking it. So it's not like the Pe- yeah, language. People
1: group or mm. animal group or <laughs> Yeah, anthropomorphic <laughs> group, Yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah. Because that was one of my questions for, for later on. And maybe we will touch back on this again. But it's like what comes first? You know, it's like the chicken and the egg. Is it the language or is it the people who speak it? So right. that's fairly insightful.
1: Yeah. Um, Tolkien was really interesting because he was so interested in what he called the sound aesthetic and so for him I think he did focus more on the sounds and then who could match his sounds because he made his languages and then wrote his books so for him the world of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit came because he needed a place to put his languages. <laughs> uh, a lot of people don't know that actually, but it was his first passion was always the languages, and then the books came later.
0: Yeah, well, he's a he was a great professor. I mean, I didn't study with him on clearly, but uh, I've been outside yeah. of Merton College, and um, you know, I've been to oh. Oxford, and you know, love uh, C. S. Lewis and and Tolkien and and uh, the whole gang there. And just you know, it, sometimes you create something, and then you need to find a place for it to live, which is interesting. That's one take. But you're saying that generally, you know, you you would typically start with your characters and, and who you think will be speaking this language, and then you construct a language around those people. And certainly that's that's kind of what you did when when you were tasked with working with this, the Superman franchise. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you're creating these words, now, are you thinking, Christine, about representing a single object, or are you trying to capture a whole sentiment? Because, you know, we've spent some time looking up several words that can't be translated to English. We had a good laugh about that. <laughs> you know, I think one of them, I can't remember. It's, it's a Japanese term, but it means to to look worse after having just had a haircut. Like there's a word for that. Like, <laughs> But it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, like sometimes you can incorporate. <laughs> We're going to have to send that to you guys, put it in the show notes. Um, but literally, like, you know, one word could have five or six or seven different words within it or, right. or just kind of uh, represent a concept or, you know, a feeling or sentiment or, or something that has happened. Um, but uh, aside from that, you know, it seems that other cultures have a gift for using the one word to encapsulate the whole feeling. Uh, Have Mm -hmm. you found this to be the case when you're writing uh, for languages?
1: I have done that a bit it's a little harder for the work that i'm doing like i know other people who are making languages and who do put really intricate concepts into one single word Um, but for my work it's a little bit harder to do because i'm tasked with translating so often and so i'm given a sentence um like the four moons of yuda protect him or whatever it is and then it's hard to come up with something that means more like the I guess in that case, we did. So like the word for moon also meant, um, I think it was serenity. There was another meaning to moon. Mm -hmm. It's been a little while since I looked at that one. I've been working on other movie projects. Um, So it's that's Kryptonian. But sometimes what's really interesting is um, back formations that you make. So if you forget something like I actually had two different words for thanking people in Kryptonian and one was because I actually forgot and then I had to come up with a reason why there were two that I had made. So one was to thank regular people and one was to thank the gods. And so sometimes you have these things where you're like, oh, well, I kind of goofed that up, but it's not, it's not really a goof up. I think I'll run with that. That's a really cool idea. So I've had things like that happen. Um, but I know in other people who are making their own languages, they definitely want to embrace these intricate concepts. And even the languages the real, natural languages, I shouldn't say real because conlangs are real too, but the natural languages I've worked with have these concepts that are bigger and hard to translate with just one word in English, they're more sentences or whatever they are.
0: Now, that's awesome. So for those of us who are creating projects that are being used around the world, and I know we've mentioned a number of different countries as we've been speaking, um, you know, what does someone have to be aware of when it comes to how the messages can change? So like, you know, or be altered because they're being localized or translated. You've just mentioned translation. Here, But just thinking about everyone who's listening because I know we have listeners as far away as the Emirates like this podcast is reaching a lot of different ears in different uh, places and time zones. What does someone need to be aware of when they are uh, going to share a message that may be heard in multiple places and, and how should that message uh, be changed or localized depending on the audience.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things to think about is that often translations aren't word for word, so even if you have a sentence in English that's eight sentences, it may end up being four words, and not to be alarmed by that because that will still capture the meaning of it, right? And Sometimes the meaning will shift slightly because of the cultural connections that are from a different culture or um, there might be different words for different types of things that don't mean exactly the same thing but being aware that um, it's never going to be word for word and different languages will put the verb at the beginning of the sentence for example versus at the end or in the middle like we do and so just not trying to put it into a box that matches what your original language was. So being flexible and adaptable and I think that gets tricky because sometimes there's these slight changes of meaning that occur you know like weird versus strange in English and maybe there's only one word for that in the other language and so you get this slightly different meaning that occurs so uh, yeah just being aware that there are these um, tricks or confusions that might occur from the translation. Different languages might have um, different feeling behind words and so there might be something that comes across or if different characters are speaking in their languages, there might be something that's coming across um, versus the, the main narrative if it's in a particular language, right, so if the is in English and then characters are speaking in their language, you almost get a sense of more authenticity from them. Um, I know a lot of people have that critique of movies that you know it's a russian movie and they're all speaking english or it's an alien movie and they're all speaking english so why are we always always speaking english and so adding that can give us a sense of authenticity to the story
0: yeah i'm just thinking about how all romans were british and <laughs> like any yeah big doggy. a know. lot of villains are british absolutely. yeah i don't know like, yeah that's interesting
1: yeah just adding that extra character to it right a different layer to that character and so you know, knowing more about that accent and um, if you're playing someone from the South, what do you do to your vowels and and what do you change even for different accents or if you're British and what do you do with dropping your R's and thinking about that so that you yourself as an actor, if you're playing that person, will start feeling more like that person, I think, right? It's going to help you get into that worldview and that mindset of the individual.
0: Right. So um, obviously there are little little quirks here and there where a word might, you know, mean something slightly different depending on maybe even the intonation. Like we know in different languages and the Asian languages and particularly in, depending on how someone says a word it could be you know completely different depending on their tone of voice right so um, you know that leads me into the question of just wondering um, is there a universal element to all languages like uh, you know are there nuances or practices that are distinctly human and not just tied to one region or people group um, there are things that people call universals of language And there's somebody named Charles
1: Hockett who was an anthropologist who looked at what he called design features of language. So what separated human and animal communication. And there are a few different things that are unique to humans, like the ability to be really productive and to take sounds and mix them up as much as possible. And um, animals don't try to do that. And all human languages have a range of sounds that get mixed. Some of them have huge ranges of sounds that are included in their languages and others have less. Like Hawaiian is actually really known for having few sounds in it, um, and then you get these more complex ones. So that practice is considered a universal. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other things. There are what people call universal features, but they're not all of languages have those, and so the communication aspect, the fact that languages are abstract in general, that um, you know, the word for chair has nothing to do with the thing that is actually a chair, it doesn't look like a chair, it doesn't sound like chair. Um So that abstractness of language is generally universal. Although we do get things like onomatopoeia where we have words that sound like the sounds they are like splish and splash and buzz and stuff like that. Um, And almost every language will have those as well. It's just um, interesting trying to find them. Uh, I just found, I was working with another language here in British Columbia called Chiquet Gene, which is also known as Shuswap. And I was uh, looking for onomatopoeia in their words. And the word for sneeze in that language is Apsa, which sounds to me like achoo. (laughs) Like it sounds like a sneeze. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, which we don't, like sneeze doesn't really sound like sneeze in English, but other languages, will have different types of onomatopoeia, so it's really interesting.
0: Wow. Uh, now, you've done a lot of work in Papua New Guinea, and, and you did reference that earlier, so can you tell us a bit about the work that you're doing there?
1: Sure. Um, so the project that I'm working on there is with a group of speakers called um, the Kala language. They are, uh, the language is spoken in six different villages in the Moro Bay province of Papua New Guinea. Uh, they're coastal people and there are four different dialects of those six villages. So the three southern villages speak one dialect, and then each of the northern villages speak a different dialect. So for example, the word for turtles in the southern villages is do. In one of the northern villages, it's zo. In the next one, it's za, and then in the next one, it's sa. So things change as you move across from south to north. And it's not that far, it's about... about two hours by boat motor boat um, between them and so the, originally in 2010 I went with my colleague John Wagner and a student of mine Kara DeVolder and the project was to help develop an alphabet for the language so that the people could teach it in their elementary schools Papua New Guinea at the time had a policy that all of their Indigenous mother tongues could be taught in school for the first three years and then bridge into English because studies have shown if you go to school in your mother tongue you will do better later on when you transition to another language. Unfortunately that policy has changed. We did end up making an alphabet. The committee um, chose the symbols. so I suggested ideas for how to represent their sounds based on the Roman alphabet, similar to the English alphabet, with some adaptations. Um, And then they chose which ones they wanted to use, and then we made a dictionary after that. So this time when we were there, uh, we were documenting environmental knowledge more explicitly, particularly the marine environment. So words for the ocean and all of the pieces of the ocean and the things that live in the ocean, as well as their rivers in their territory. And we're developing an environmental encyclopedia, which will be in Kala, their language as well as English, and an expanded dictionary because the one we made in 2012 was quite small, as well as a new sketch grammar for people to help them understand the structure of the language. Um, Part of what we've been doing this last time too, in 2006, my colleague John Wagner did a study of looking at how much language shift had occurred from the Pakala language to Tokpisan, and then we were doing a follow up study of that 10 years later. So we were asking all the villages, like, do the children still speak Kala here, or are they speaking more Pidgin? And some of them had already been speaking Pidgin, and how much more has come in since then, and which generations are now almost fully in Pidgin versus in KALA and so that was a, a big focus of our project as well and so absolutely looking at language revitalization and language maintenance is a major part of my work and um, part of why I find common is really interesting is because when I was working with the NAVI speakers I did a study of um, Navi speakers in 2011, and those were the people who are learning the language from Avatar, and I asked them about why they were learning Navi. I just was really curious about that, because there had been media stories reporting that thousands of people were learning Navi in a very quick period of time, and I kept wondering, well, if they can learn Navi so quickly, how are they doing it, and why are they doing that instead of looking at these languages that are endangered? And I got all of these replies that the community was so welcoming, and it was an online community, and so I got really interested in how these online fandoms could be models for endangered language communities. And a lot of my work has focused on that since that time.
0: Well, that's, that's amazing. Like, I love that. Because there are a lot of indigenous languages that are frankly, you know, endangered, um, you know, not a lot of speakers left. But you know, it, it's just so interesting to know that you could take something that's like, wow, this fandom idea of, you know, we love to speak Navi, because we feel like we're part of a community. Uh, you know, if you can take that and use it, you know, in a powerful way to preserve languages that are actually spoken, and that have a whole history and, and thousands of years of, of being spoken, then, then that it's really something to celebrate.
1: Yeah, so I also work within endangered language communities in Canada. I were uh, for my PhD, I worked with a Cree community in northern Alberta, um, the Loon River Cree, and I've also worked with the Tack River Clinket. And one of the ideas. Um, that came out of the NAVI research from there was to build a website and actually their language revitalization work has really focused on um, names for the land and uh, resources and learning about how to respect the land and be a steward of the land at the same time as learning their language because the two are they really see them as connected and so we developed this Taku River Clinket place names website and you can find it by googling that and um, you can go and it's a website and you can read stories from elders and you can click on a map and see different names of places that are in Clinkit and then um, what is found there in terms of like can you get moose there or fish and it was tied. For my PhD work, I actually helped develop a Clinkit language board game and then this website has kind of developed from that and so you can use it as a tool to play the board game. Uh, So that's another piece of what I've been working on and it's the, we kind of set up the forums and the way that the website works very similar to how the Learn Navi website had been set up as well.
0: That's amazing. So um, we've mentioned different cultures and and times and places and language and, and how it all fits together. But if you were trying to create a language for a certain time and place, what would you need to be aware of when structuring that language so that it comes across as authentic in its environment and believable?
1: I guess what the words would be at the time right so if you're trying to do something that's from early history there's probably not going to be words for computers or cars or thinking about those types of things right one of the things that people often think about as well and, and this is something that people really like to play with especially those people who are developing conlangs for themselves and for purposes. They they like to push the boundaries of what language can do. So there are people who will make languages without verbs, um, right? So you can be experimental or maybe there's no adjectives or there's no way to add emphasis. Being aware of the diversity of how language works in general, um, getting a little bit of a background on types of languages or learning about different languages will help you figure out what is the best one for this particular space and time. And so one of the things that I did for Kryptonian was, um, I I first heard the story when I first went to set and met with the production designer, Alex McDowell. He told me the story of the Man of Steel remake of they were doing a Superman. And he talked about how Krypton was going to explode and they had been very selfish and all the resources were depleted. And so I took that into consideration when I was thinking about the sentence structure actually. So they'd been very selfish and they were very me, me, me centric. And so I put the subject first And then they'd also have this long association with their objects. They wrote everything. There was writing all over the set of Man of Steel. And so they would write the history of who had owned robots and the history of the people all over things. And so the objects came next and then the verb Uh, as compared to English, which goes subject, verb, object. So I kind of rearranged the sentence structure based on this idea of what the culture was like at the time. So considering those types of things will help add emphasis or change the way you think about um, the language and the people who are speaking it.
0: So the words often come before the, the language as a whole, I think, and you've kind of emphasized that too, but it really depends on the culture of those characters. And as you said, if, if the um, general consensus among these individuals is that they are gruff people or that they're really, you know, short or uh, short-tempered, I should say, just like, you know, then their language will reflect that, the way that they speak and how they engage with others and, and the uh, briskness uh, of the words perhaps will, will reflect that too. And that's really interesting one of the things that um, Klingon is kind of seen
1: as the most uh, wonderful example of this in pop culture because it's been around for so long and, and the Klingon culture is so gruff and aggressive and the language really emphasizes that. Marker Crand used um, you know sounds from the back of the throat to make it sound harsher and he changed the sentence structure so it's something that is extremely rare in human languages the objects come first which hardly ever happens. Uh, David Peterson has done this with Game of Thrones with the Dothraki language as well. The types of sounds and the, the words and the construction of it make it also fit that culture very well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, even just even accents. I'm just thinking to uh, you know the UK and the very lilting, lovely sort of like I can only imagine that, that that totally influenced Tolkien. It must have. Like just the way that the Elvish language comes across and and uh, you, you really do take into account just you know the, the attributes of the people, even their clients climate, right? Um, where they are and in, in their history and, and their approach, a general view of, of how life is. So that's really fascinating. But uh, um, I understand that, you know, your work, obviously, as we've been talking, is taking you to Hollywood and, you know, Kryptonian being one of those languages. And uh, you're working on more projects, no doubt. I don't know if you have a non-disclosure agreement or anything, so maybe we can't go into those. <laughs> well, one of them has already come out, so
1: I can talk about that
0: one. Uh, I was also
1: recently Power Rangers just came out, um, Saban's Power Rangers. And so there's, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's uh, the beginning scene has an alien language in it, um, and then in the middle. So the Power Rangers are aliens. They're from a world called Eltar. And so I developed the Eltarian language for the Power Rangers movie, actually. So I got to work with Brian Cranston and Elizabeth Banks, teaching them the language so that they could uh, have it on screen. So Brian Cranston was Zordon, uh, who's the, the ranger who um, is uh, seen in the beginning of the movie, and then he's in the wall directing the new Power Rangers. And then Elizabeth Banks is Rita Repulsa. She's the villain. So they both had to learn a little bit of Altarian for the
0: movie. So when you are creating a language for an environment like film, that is obviously there's going to be so many people watching, like millions upon millions of viewers. Is there anything special that you take into account when you create a language for film? Definitely. So one of the things
1: is um, the sound that are included. And so for Kryptonian, I actually looked at what was available. Uh, I wasn't sure. I knew that I'd been, I was invited to work with the art department. And so I didn't know if it was going to be spoken, but I made it as if it would be spoken. And there were some scenes that were filmed um, that were including spoken Kryptonian, but it was at a late juncture in the film. And so they didn't end up making it into the movie. So there isn't actually anything spoken, but I did consider that because I knew that actors might have troubles with really non-English sounds. And so I wanted to make sure that it was something they were able to do. Um, The other thing is length of words. You don't want to have things that are quite long if actors are going to be speaking them. So, thinking about who the actors are in that case, if you're working for a Hollywood production or something else where you know that people will end up speaking it for whatever project you're working on, considering not only the culture of those characters, but the actual is something important to think about as well
0: so how did you create languages for those Power Ranger characters that help the audience to get a sense of their persona or background
1: for Power Rangers I also had a really great um, consultation process with Dean Israelite uh, the director and Melissa Flores who is from Sabin uh, which is the creator of the Power Rangers Dean was one of the most um, interested directors he had a lot of uh, thoughts and feelings about how the language should be constructed and he really wanted, um, sounds that were more ancient. So things like. That would have come from Greek or Aramaic or whatever some guttural sounds and he was very interested in that um, where the Sabin consultant gave me ideas about the culture because she knew a lot about the history and so she talked about how they were elegant but firm and they're not soft spoken but they're powerful um, but not argumentative sounding and she said she reminded me of the Power Rangers motto never escalate the battle and how this could be useful and I also um I loved that the Power Rangers morph, that's one of the things they do, they morph into their their zords, and so I thought a lot about morphology, which is how words are put together, and so that was one of the things that I considered a lot when I was making this language. so there were a lot of challenging sounds in the language, actually. And so if you listen to some of the media from Bill Hader and Brian Cranston talking about how hard it was to pronounce the sounds, it was because of these ancient ideas of the language, because the Power Rangers were aliens who'd been around for a very long period of time.
0: My goodness. And I guess just thinking about what you said about the uh, the morphing, and, and that must have had some very interesting side effects, I guess, to the way that those words came out. Like, were was it the same language, essentially? It's just that it came out in a little bit of a, a different gruff or level of kind of uh, I guess urgency or, or was it did it sound bigger or like like how how did that morph how did your language morph as they physically morphed so it wasn't English at all it was
1: very different from English um, but it the words themselves had a lot of pieces that were creating meaning within them and so they were very um full of morphemes. Morphemes are the pieces of words that have meaning like so if we have the word um, happy and then we add nis to it so nis is what's called a morpheme. So I thought about these like making long longer words than I would have typically have done um, for this particular language and yeah there was a lot of different sounds to it and So it it definitely changed. Uh, One thing that always happens is that during editing, things morph during editing, right? Lines will be cut, lines will be added. So things changed at that point in time as well.
0: Wow. So I'm guessing people had to come back to do some dubbing in the studio or like if, was it at that stage, like as they were editing and cutting words out or or probably some some ADR, some looping happened there? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So I was Skyped into the ADR sessions because um, I got to be on set when Brian was doing his lines. Uh, He was on a green screen and then they did... um, Uh, like outdoor shots. And so I was there helping him learn how to say the words. And then sometimes the lines just wasn't on camera and his mouth wasn't moving properly or uh, because now it was a new line, right? So changing those lines is always something interesting. Uh, when that ADR process is happening.
0: I was going to say that the lip flaps and matching that, that would be really, really tricky. And, and you couldn't just pull on any voice artist who actually happened to sound like one of the actors because then they'd have to learn the language. And, and that's a whole other learning curve that you wouldn't find in English. Right. That can also get tricky, for sure.
1: The other thing which was really lucky, though, is that um, they wear helmets. <laughs> so in some cases, you know, it's a robot. And so it doesn't really matter about his lip movements or they're wearing the, the alien uh, Power Rangers helmet so that was also helpful in terms of some of those issues.
0: We just need to ask, because obviously you're, you're rubbing shoulders in some ways with some uh, very high profile people in the work that you do, uh, what was it like to walk in and meet Brian Cranston and Elizabeth Banks? It was really fun, actually. They were very lovely. I didn't actually get
1: to meet Elizabeth Banks in person. I was Skyped in to meet with her while she was in studio, but she was just so chill and relaxed and very calm about doing the language. She was very... Um, yeah, relax doing the language where other people might get a little bit nervous. Brian was really funny, and he's such a down-to-earth guy and it was great meeting him. And at one point, they were asking him, "Do you mind if Christine comes to tell you the line?" And he said, "No, if Christine could stand right there where I'm directing my lines, that would be very helpful." And they, you know, they had to check to make sure it was okay with him. And he was just really welcoming. And we had to do sound recordings later on together. And um, I was reading the other lines, and he was just always really uh, friendly and encouraging. And so it was lovely to meet him. I also got to Skype in to his ADR session, and he's just such a great actor. His voice is so expressive, so it was wonderful to hear him say my language. It was the first time that my language was spoken on the screen, so I'm really glad that it was Brian Franston who got to do it.
0: That's fantastic. And and I'm just thinking back to you did obviously the work on, on Superman and Kryptonian and, and there were some very high profile actors there too. And, and of course, Russell Crowe immediately comes to mind. So what was your level of involvement with these actors? Were you tasked with teaching them? And if so, how did you go about doing that?
1: I was actually. So at first I was working with the art department because they wanted Kryptonian writing on the council chamber chairs and in Jor-El's lab and various places and so people got really excited though when they found out this was actually a language and you could speak it and so I was asked to translate lines that were being shot and filmed with the actors and I would do that by making an audio recording and then sending that to them and then being on standby with my cell phone in case Russell Crowe had an emergency on set trying to say whatever line it was. Unfortunately, none of that made it into the final cut because it was kind of mid-film and it would be a little bit odd, I think, to have Kryptonian spoken in the middle of filming. Uh, So I didn't get to hear Kryptonian spoken in that film, which is why I was very excited to have Altarian spoken in Power Rangers.
0: Wow. Imagine being on call for Russell (laughs) Crowe. Not many of us can (laughs) say that we've ever been on call for Russell Crowe. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Christine. Now, is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about your work? I have my own website, so christinetryer.ca.
1: There has also been a Kryptonian website. Uh, I think it's kryptonian.info, and that is a website that is produced by another language creator called Darren Doyle. He started developing another Kryptonian, which was Um, based on the symbols found in Smallville back in the time that that show was running. And so Darren has done a historic Kryptonian website now where the previous comic book versions of the language are listed there, as well as his work and then as well as the Man of Steel version of Kryptonian. So that's a great source of info. Um, Otherwise, there are a few videos around where I talk about Kryptonian. Uh, There's not much out there on Altarian from Power Rangers yet. It came out at the end of March and then I ran away to New Guinea
0: so uh, perhaps there will be more in the future. Where can um, some of our our producers and writers and anyone who's listening here who wants to make a constructed language, where is the place that they should go to get kind of the the uh, kind of outline or, or guideline if you will for how they should go about creating their own language? That's
1: a great question, and there are a few different resources that are available. One of them is the Language Creation Society, and there's a website for them. You can Google them, and they have um, a group of people who've been making languages for numerous, numerous years. They have a biannual conference. There's actually the Language Creation Conference is running in Calgary, Alberta, this year at the University of Calgary. I'm one of the co-hosts with a linguistics student, a PhD student named Joey Windsor, and we're actually um, premiering our conlanging film there. Marco Crand, who made Klingon, Paul Fromer who made Navi, David Peterson who made um, the languages from Game of Thrones as well as many, many other things, and um, David Salo who is the Tolkien linguist for the Lord of the Rings movies, and then our director Britton Watkins, and our editor Josh Feldman, and so we're very excited to be having our premiere uh, talking about how people have begun to make languages and the documentary film coming up soon. And the other thing that I would suggest is uh, David Peterson's book, The Art of Language Invention. And he has made this wonderfully funny book and how to start from the very beginning and move on to learn about making languages. So those are my two suggestions, the Language Creation Society, as well as David Peterson's book.
0: Well, that's awesome. Um, If you have any parting words, some advice that you would give to someone who's about to do this just from your own experience, um, how could you encourage them right now?
1: i would say have fun with it it's so fun one of the things i love most about this side part of my career is that it's fun it's an escape from reality you get to play with different ideas and concepts and um, ways of thinking about the world and it's a wonderful uh tool to have at your fingertips when you start getting into it you can think about things in such different ways i think it will help you in other parts of your life but um also don't get frustrated if you're trying to put sounds together and it's not working. Tolkien worked on this for, you know, years and years and so has many other really successful conlangers. So don't get frustrated if it doesn't go smoothly right away and just keep at it. And there are so many people online who are willing to help out and give you advice. So look for those people. They are out there and they're willing to help.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Christine. It was my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in, and if you haven't already done so, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as well as give us a rating. We love hearing from you and gathering your feedback. Once again, I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli, and I hope you can join us for our next Sound Stories podcast.